This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. For millions of people all over the world, social media isn't a source of entertainment or information, but potentially a way to reinvent themselves and completely change their existence. A new book, Get Rich or Lie Trying, delves into the lives of these people and the schemes and scams which offer them a way out. What if you could stop being a loser of our economic system by winning the internet's attention, asks the book. What if you could turn that attention and adoration of your social media followers into a lucrative livelihood? What unfolds is a gripping expose of fraud, exploitation, misogyny and environmental destruction. Its author, Simeon Brown, is a reporter at Channel 4 News and was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2019 for his work exposing the dodgy financial traders of Instagram. He joins me here today in the bunker. Welcome to the bunker, Simeon. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. So this book is a journey through all aspects of what we might call the influencer economy, from cosmetic surgery to financial pyramid schemes. What first triggered your interest as a journalist and made you think there was something joining all of these disparate stories together? Yeah, so, I mean, a few years ago, I began to notice that a lot of the young people that I was meeting who were from communities like mine, Tottenham, the inner city, were suddenly according to the way they were presenting themselves, they were rich. They were wearing three-piece suits, driving Teslas, Jaguars, and saying that they were traders or hedge fund CEOs, but they were like 21, 22, 23 years old. Mm. And they were from backgrounds that had historically been underrepresented in finance. So I I was very curious. As I began to dig, what I realized, and as I interviewed them, is that they were primarily influencers, marketers, who were signing young people up to kind of platforms that were selling kind of no win, no fee betting products that were super rigged against consumers that the FCA had warned about. And ultimately, they, they they were just that. They were influencers. And the things they were pushing looked more like pyramid schemes. As I began to dig and pull the thread, actually, there was a whole proliferation or a re kind of galvanization of that old model of pyramid schemes that had happened on social media for very different means that were targeting different people based on different identities. Some focused on young women, young mothers. There have been scandals, companies like LulaRoll, even the way that the grammar of NFTs and some of the crypto schemes work, they follow the same logic. And so I was very interested in the way that influencer culture had reinvented pyramid schemes and also how the grammar of it actually follows the kind of similar rules. And within that, I was also looking at how for a generation of young people who have seen their kind of expectations and their ambitions effectively squeezed by this current economic moment in which real wages of actual middle class or graduate labor are down on what they were maybe 20 years ago. Home ownership in cities like London is is pretty much impossible without huge abundance of wealth or family investment. And so young people who are super ambitious were exposed to imagery of, of, of wealth for consuming ideas of what success meant and then how social media enabled them to fill the gap between the economic reality and rise of precarity and this moment. And so that is what was really at the heart of the book. And I think at this moment in time, I guess the zeitgeist that the book is born out of are the very things that have been dominating, I guess, popular culture. You know, the Anna Delvey documentary, the recent exposure by the BBC on the fake PR company, the Tinder Swindler, and about this kind of 
fake it till you make it and the resurgence in scam culture. But fundamentally, what it tells us about this economic moment too. It's an unusual one because in some ways it feels very different to other digital marketplaces and economies which have gone before. And yet in other ways, it seems just like an incredibly old fashioned pyramid scheme. Did you feel it was more one or the other or is it a sort of mixture of the two? I, I feel that you're right. I think that fundamentally at the heart of it, the logic of a pyramid scheme and even the way that the platforms are working like multi-level marketing companies. That's an old model that was extremely discredited once upon a time that has been regalvanized and brought to life and made, I guess, more sexy in an online individual sphere. But at the same time, some of the cultural elements, some of the new scenes, these things are new trends. So one of the kind of, I guess, things that I was looking at, I guess, if you look at some of the fast fashion companies, especially the ones that are tapped into the hegemony of hip hop culture and were trying to, I guess, propel a new model of work for so-called fast fashion influencers who were promoting types of companies that were drawing or trying to wear or place clothes on people of the kind of Kim Kardashian shape. The ubiquity of the kind of BBL, the Brazilian butt lift, the procedure that makes you have that kind of curvaceous shape. The cultural elements of that, I would say, are, are new. But the actual models behind them, the pyramid schemes and, and the most level marketing platforms I was looking at, these things were definitely very old. Some of the personal stories that you tell with the people you encounter in the book are genuinely tragic. Which of the encounters in the book stayed with you the most? I think the encounter that stayed with me the most was a man named EBZ or Ebenezer. He was a West African migrant in America, but he had assimilated quite well. He sounds like an American newscaster, but he had the similar story of a lot of migrants trying to make it in America, trying to I guess, pursue the so-called American dream, but look for community, settle. And he effectively ended up kind of down and out. He was living in Skid Row. I mean, I, at the time, I actually didn't know much about it. And so I was actually aghast when I came out of my hotel one day in downtown LA. And I was walking for blocks and I was like, like where the hell am I? Yeah, the scale of it is dizzying when you say it. It is absolutely horrendous. Effectively, a shantytown in what is supposed to be the most glamorous city in the world. And so he was living amongst, you know, Skid Row. He was a, he was among America down and out. He then obviously he was able to find work. He was doing various server jobs, and he eventually did Uber. And whilst he was doing Uber, he managed to kind of tap into his hobbies that he loved, that and the flexibility of the of the work, and he started creating music. This is a man now in his late thirties, approaching his forties. And one day, a very famous live streamer enters his car the live streamer is a part of a very kind of toxic almost alt-right leaning community super misogynistic racism is kind of like an ironic thing that they like to play on they stream constantly and they're always looking for drama so that they can entertain their fans and then they can monetize that in the form of tips anyway he gets in his car and suddenly he's live streaming his uber driver the uber driver becomes a huge kind of character in their world his fans seem to like him and then he becomes almost a character on the stream in which now he can make an income as a character on this live stream, but effectively charging people to be racially abused. And so you know, for $5 or $10, you can racially abuse him on a stream. And that's now his new line of work. And I think his story really spoke to a lot of the themes in the book, which is kind of the real nature of work. What does it mean to have bargaining power in work? What is the nature of digital work? And also the, what are the demands of it? And I, for me, he was such a kind of, nuanced character and, and thinker but at the same time that world was particularly shocking and raised a lot of ethical questions whilst not necessarily always resolving them 
there'll be people listening who've been targeted by these kind of pyramid and affiliate marketing schemes themselves, often through people they considered friends or even family. What are the classic signs that someone's trying to recruit you into something which isn't all that it appears to be? I mean, anybody anybody who says that you know there, there is no risk, I think you should run in the other in the other the direction personally. And you see a lot of that online and even the way that this kind of NFT moment is packaged, you know, that you cannot miss out on this moment. You should be you should be nervous. I think that it's it's the near sense of certainty, the use of FOMO especially, and anything that also is quite short term, I think is worrying. I mean short term speculation means that if you're expecting to make a lot of money in a short amount of time, then the likelihood is that it's some kind of Ponzi or reliant on building hype. Anything that is reliant on hype and reliant on generating huge amount of interest is almost certainly going to be volatile. And so those are the things that I, I think were particularly striking. The NFT moment and the crypto moment, watching that unfold and looking at how it has effectively followed so many other iterations of pyramid schemes or, or, or dubious investments, you know, five years ago, it was so-called binary options or these forex trading platforms, or spread betting. Seeing how the thing that a lot of the people in my book now are now gravitating towards it is quite telling. It was interesting that when there's certain characters in the book there, you say have flipped through about three or four different iterations from currency trading to day trading on stock markets to crypto now it, it seems obviously like the same the same models reoccurring you talk in the book about how you grew up in tottenham you you went to quite a bad school you know it was not a great area that you grew up in economically do you think your own upbringing gave you an insight into how some of these people either got scammed or ended up running these hustles themselves. Was there an element of there but for the grace of God about your reporting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, look, it's funny because I, I wrote in the book as well, if you go to a school like mine, your social media platforms, like especially the ones where you're connected to the people that you actually studied with, are just going to be rife with people saying, yo, I've got a way for you to make loads of money. Like, every day I'm getting hit by somebody from my school with some kind of new kind of scheme or trend that fall into this pattern. And I think that it's telling about what are the arenas in which people who are removed from elite backgrounds are able to participate in, in capitalism. So we know that, you know, ironically, the same kind of culture that I'm talking about here, and I write about it, is that are reflective of what is happening in Silicon Valley and the huge boom in startup investments and a huge pursuit of risk, hoping that it pays off, hoping that people are going to be, investors are going to be the next Peter Thiel or, you know, find the next Zuckerberg or whatever. Everyone's looking for a unicorn. But the people who are actually able to access this world, this, you know, Willy Wonka's factory of, 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 of private capital are people with very, very narrow elite credentials who look like the investors. We know that the number of women who receive venture capitals is normal style and void, same for minorities. And so for young people from with disenfranchised on these faces who really want to participate and really want to succeed and be affluent, a lot of the time it's these kind of shadow economies and pyramid schemes, which gives them the route and gives them the, 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 the what they feel is, is the step in the, in the door. Although, of course, it's always glitter repackaged as, as gold. And so I think that because of my sheer experience of, of these things regularly coming to me via my networks, I think that, that, that is how it certainly, I think, landed on my door and led to me wanting to investigate it and, and unpick it. And then also unpick the kind of where did these actual values actually come from? And so obviously my book is called Get Rich or Lie Trying, which is obviously a nod to a very famous hip hop album by 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. And it's those values which 
hip hop has been pumping up for a long time. Now, you know, you know, there's no unfair or illegitimate way to get money. Like you just have to do what you have to do. You have to survive. You have to excel. The system's unfair, so you have to act any way that you can by any means necessary. And I think that is these values at a time when you know social democracy and collectivist values feel like you know they're unfashionable in retreat. I think it's this which is at the heart of the book. One other cultural theme you pick up on there when you talk about the way a lot of these schemes have disproportionately targeted ethnic minorities in a very particular way is the way that you pick up on the similarity between the language and attitudes used in selling these schemes and what was familiar to you from attending your mother's church where, you know, a prosperity gospel was preached. Um, can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's interesting is, is as you say, I mean, a lot of the language that some of the traders that I was looking at, motivational traders and influencers were using and the spiel, that spiel I, I had already all heard, I'd heard in church. And, the, and in church, you know, they bring over all these American so-called pastors who come over and really at the end of their spiel, they would then be selling to invest, sow a seed, invest in your life and, you know, effectively give money to the church. And God doesn't want you to be poor. And the prosperity gospel was a super big part of my, my, my childhood. The irony also was that there was also a forex scandal in my, in my, in my church as well, which a lot of people lost a lot of money. And that actually catched some headlines. And so it was actually the same hustle, but being deployed pre-social media time. And so it's like how the social media has galvanized old models by presenting it differently and then it being able to wear different hats at different times, let alone the fact that social media itself follows the whole grammar of, you know, people hope that a, an influencer they aspire to be who can be a patron for them, can repost them, they can therefore share them with their audience and they can grow their following and it has a hierarchical logic. And so most metaphorically, but also literally, the, the pyramid scheme is almost entwined with the, the culture of our social media use. And so, yeah, I think, I think growing up in, in, in the church and seeing the ideology actually take hold at that moment in time, I can really see how these values have really, I guess, captured the sensibility in the, in the multiracial inner city. Talking there about those areas, you write in the book about how when governments look at supposedly failing communities, they frequently talk about a lack of aspiration in very broad terms. But you point out how actually the opposite is true, and it's often an excess of aspiration that's leading people astray and sending them into these kind of schemes. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, there is no shortage. I mean, I, I'm, I'm 33 now. And I remember all the kind of schemes that were designed to increase aspiration because that was why certain young black men were failing. And they, that was also the language used around white working class men as well. Certainly, lack of aspiration was not, was not an issue. Aspiration was, was high. Everyone wanted to work hard. Everybody wanted to, to achieve. Everybody wanted to succeed. The irony was that there was just a lack of, I guess, cultural capital to understand what that meant. You didn't have the networks. You know, you, you just didn't really have the map, you know what I'm saying, to, 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 to success. And so I think that because of that abundance of aspiration, it was easily manipulated and it's easy, therefore makes pyramid schemes more appealing because a lot of times it appeals to, the, to your ambition. It appeals to your, to, your, to, your, to your desire, but without you necessarily having the expertise to really navigate what it is that you're seeing. So I remember even when I, I was studying, I studied economics at university, and I remember, interestingly enough, a kind of forex-based scheme being raised in the church that my family went to. And because I studied Ponzi schemes, I said, they're promising you guaranteed returns 
of 10% every year, anybody who guarantees you returns pretty much means that they're likely to be in a Ponzi scheme because that's largely how, that's, that, that's the key premise. And they were like, what's a Ponzi scheme? And so it was like, it, it, was, it, it, was, it was again this telling of how it is that you take advantage of people's desire and ambition to improve their lives whilst there being a deficit in them understanding what it is that they're, they're, they're taking part in and being critical with, with the things that they're being approached to do. And I think certainly growing up, some of the most ambitious people I, I, ever, I ever knew right now just feel like, you know, if, if you don't succeed, then something's wrong with you, that there's a character flaw. There is almost a lack of looking at the systemic issues that determine who succeeds and why. And I think that that pressure is on our entire generation. And you, you can really feel the sense that you know, people, a, a generation feel like, you know, there's this, that they just they they just have to like to, to not succeed is almost like a damning indictment of who you are. I thought it was amazing in the book, particularly with the young men that you interview, the number of them who mentioned the Wolf of Wall Street as being this kind of seeing the film as this sort of foundational text, and they hadn't seen it as a cautionary tale at all. They'd seen yeah, it as yeah, a model yeah. for what they should be doing. Yeah, I mean it's. A, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, it's just hip hop in a film. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like everybody sees themselves, even people with privilege, ironically, everybody sees themselves, I guess, as an underdog. And everybody wants to be self-made. Of course, self-made is mostly always impossible. Like, there's always a good bad fortune. People are always made by their friends and their networks and their families. And like, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all standing on the shoulders of somebody. But, uh, but there was this huge, I guess, sense that pop culture figures and memes and films and music were, were a big part of the zeitgeist of these values, largely. And so Wolf of Wall Street is just one of the examples of a, you know, a hustler and how everybody began, or a lot of these young men began to model themselves on and saw it as like, he made something out of nothing by any means necessary. That's heroic. I want to be like that. He wears the suits. And effectively, he, he almost comes out, he almost presents the character out of a, of a Jay-Z rap, or, do you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's the it's the relationship I think between I guess the post action generation who've grown up in an age where hip hop has had hegemony and where the values and the ideas in this music, which are really the ideas just like of you know of, of Wall Street in the eighties and Gordon Gecko, which was the same thing as Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, of like you know this is how you go from the bottom to the top which is a a Drake lyric, of course. Later in the book, you write at length about how the Black Lives Matter movement was used by a number of public figures to promote themselves and profit financially in a way which, if it wasn't criminal, was certainly morally quite dubious. I'd never read anything about that before. Do you think that's a story that's been appreciated by people from outside the black community before? I mean, the book's not out yet, so I I, I don't know if it's been appreciated. I guess we'll see. I don't know. It's an interesting one. Right now, there are a lot of questions that are being asked about activists and what is driving activists and who wins from activism. I guess that chapter on Black Lives Matter, Here's My Cash App, was speaking to the wider trend of effectively political movements, pivoting to being driven by content and desire to create content largely for developing an audience and to be participating in the attention economy. Now, newspapers and tabloids have always created headlines, bias to their audiences, for attention and to sell. Now that that power is in the hands of millions of people, that has consequences too. And I was looking at how a real justice movement, you know, that, that, that is important and is talking about real injustices that are historic, how effectively 
social media is not the place to build a cohesive movement that builds coalitions because it effectively pivots people into celebrity and creates incentives, which actually undermines those things. And so, you know, in my in the book, you know, I look at activists, you know, who have manufactured race attacks. I don't know why you need to manufacture racism. There's enough of it in the site already. You don't need to make it up. Like it's there. But it, it's about what the, the, the platform then incentivize you to do. And so I think my critique, which I guess we're looking at, I guess, Black Twitter broadly, and then BLM as a part of that. You know, BLM is a broad category now. It's both an organization and a broad movement and things of that nature. Just looks at how, how it was appropriate. I think we also saw one of the, you know, some of the families of the victims have spoken out race concerns and we also saw uh, Breonna Taylor who was killed you know she practically became a meme and people were just using her as a punchline for you know bikini selfies and things of that nature to drive engagement and so it really raises questions as to therefore then what is the progressive potential of our participation on these platforms if everything is a pivot to content and entertainment. And finally, what do you think could be done to police this world better? Are there any signs that either people are getting wiser to these schemes or that regulators might be able to get to grips with them? The regulators, they are not fit for purpose. And also, it's easier to regulate media in an age where, you know, you have TV and you have billboards and you have papers and you have a few outlets. In an age where basically millions of people are outlets now, that is almost impossible. I guess the question really is about who is accountable and where liability lies. And if that if that question there is resolved, then I guess we'll see greater responses from the platforms themselves. Some of the kind of, I guess, influencer traders who are propelling risk and in some cases you know, arguably misrepresenting what it is that they're selling. I think that they are still active on the platforms. They breach the rules on the platforms, but the platforms are almost unable to to respond. But in some cases, they are set up to maybe, they do respond to copyright infringements. I mean, YouTube is, is very, very savvy that things that you've infringed on copyright. The algorithm is programmed to do that. And but then there's a reason for that. So I think that when the question of liability is, is dealt with in policy, then maybe we'll see some action, certainly on pyramid schemes. But other than that, it's really it's really hard at the moment for regulators to get a grip. Simeon Brown, thank you for joining me on The Bunker today. No, no, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I generally appreciate it. I know, great, great chat. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp. You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Being tuned by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>